0: Hello and welcome to Sam for Uncut, a podcast for developers about building great products. Today, I'm excited to welcome Justin Cormack. Justin, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me. It's really nice to be on here. I'm Justin Cormack. I've been working at Docker for almost exactly five years now. And so I've been really involved in everything happening with containers. It's been an exciting place to be. There's been a lot happening in the last five years. You know, A few of these things you might have heard of as well as Docker, there's been... Kubernetes appeared in the last five years and things like that. So it's been really exciting. I've been doing a lot of work on security during that time. I didn't start off doing security, but I've moved into security. I also work on kind of business strategy partnerships, working with Amazon and Microsoft, which has been good fun. I've done a lot of work with CNCF. I started with SIG Security, which is a bunch of people interested in security parts of cloud native. And since the beginning of this year, I've been on the technical oversight committee of the CNCF. I'm a maintainer of the Notary Project, which is a CNCF project around supply chain security for containers. So I've got a lot of interests around there as well.
0: Great. Yeah. And when you said uh, almost exactly five years, I remember that like 2015 were the point where we started getting deeply involved in Docker and it became the thing. So essentially, you have been the whole journey almost from the inception of Docker until now. That's great. Yeah. And For our listeners who are maybe not on a day-to-day basis involved in security and the whole thinking framework around security, can you maybe give us a brief introduction about general security?
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, security is an interesting thing. I didn't ever really mean to get into security. I actually did a talk at KubeCon just the other week about how I kind of got into security by mistake and how that happened. So my first exposure really to security, I was actually working on automated rollouts of systems at university and people kept logging into these systems as root. These were like external people. We didn't know who they were. And they came and they logged into our systems and they started running things and doing stuff. They weren't hostile people, but they found it very convenient to log into these systems had lots of bandwidth and storage and things they could use. It was kind of inconvenient because somehow they kept logging in and it became a kind of interesting thing. Like, Oh, how do we actually fix this and things like that? So I kind of got into security just because like people were logging into my computers that I was looking after and I (laughs) wanted to stop them doing it. But I kind of think of security really to a large extent as just being about program quality and software quality, because really security is about thinking about things, you know, when they go wrong. Because often when we're developing software, we work on the thing, which is often called the happy path. It's like, oh, I'm building a shopping application. I want to check that I can go and I can log into the shop. I can buy these products and check out and leave and everything works. Everyone's happy. Like the process works. But the security thing is like, what happens when something else happens that isn't in the happy path? That there's something unexpected goes on. Someone goes into the JavaScript in the form and changes the price of the object to one dollar instead of a hundred dollars. And can they check it out for one dollar and actually buy it? You know, these things are not the things you notice if you just try and do the things you're supposed to do. It's like, what happens if you do the things you're not supposed to do? And software should work when things go wrong as well as when things go right. And I really think of security as just being that collection of everything about things going wrong. Some people don't see all of those things are security, like, is it a hostile thing? But I mean, most of the things that go wrong in that area of quality, and often it's hard to tell which things are security issues until they're actually exploited. It seems to be the case that actually many bugs can be security bugs if people try hard enough to actually exploit them. So the kind of fuzziness between what's just things that aren't working properly or things that are... Misbehave somehow, and things that are actually attackable is a very fuzzy line. So, thinking about security just as a kind of quality thing, I think, is the best way of thinking about it. Like, just thinking about everything else that could go wrong, that could happen if unexpected things happen, if errors happen, if other systems fail, and those things.
0: That's great, the introduction that you gave us. So, Docker is really like, uh, let's say, the infrastructure layer of our software stack for many developers. And I guess the Culture at Docker is a, a bit different from a typical, maybe a company making web apps or web web shops. What's your experience in terms of educating, you know, developers and people working on the software in the lines of security? You mentioned that from the perspective of quality as a more general thing. Do you have experience of maybe educating developers who are not that security aware? There's a lot of things to
1: do in that area, and it's a really important area to invest in. It's really important to help people. So I think there's a lot of different things. So one of the really interesting things about working at Docker, unlike a company that just builds web apps, we actually build a big variety of very different systems. We do build web apps. I mean, Docker Hub has a web app in front of it, basically. But we also build software that we ship to other people like the Docker engine. And so that's a kind of more traditional I mean, we don't have the enterprise business anymore because that went to Merentis, but that was a very much a shipping software to customers to run on-prem kind of business. But Docker Engine is pretty much like that. And then we also have Docker Desktop, which is like a totally different thing because it's a desktop application with all the different security surface that has that does automatic updates and things like that. We actually have a really wide variety of development environments and CI environments and test environments, all that sort of stuff, which makes it more fun. But I think there's a bunch of different kind of things that are important to educate people with. So I think with web apps, there is one thing that's really important is that there's just a lot of security surface of things that you need to do in a web app that are really important and generally relatively well documented because the web app space is actually quite good at doing this. So things like making sure you don't have cross-site scripting and things like that and the headers your webpage should have to make sure it doesn't get hijacked and those kinds of things. They're relatively well documented. And generally, engineers who've been working in this space for a while tend to know about them. But I mean, they do sometimes miss them. There's a lot of stuff and it changes over time and there's best practices change over time. But those things I sort of count as like domain expertise for how you're working. And ideally, they'll be entrenched in tooling that tend to not be as much as they should be. But People can learn these things themselves and there are useful checklists and things like that. So people don't need a lot of hand holding for those in general. You know, once they've kind of understood that there's this set of things that they need to do. Then there's actually things that I think that people don't absorb unless you handhold them a bit usually. I think that threat modeling is something that's not widely taught. And threat modeling is basically understanding how someone might attack your piece of software and what they might be trying to achieve by doing that and what kinds of things they might try and do and what kinds of ways can you then protect yourself. And lots of people just are not exposed to that at all. It seems a sort of specialist thing, but it's the sort of thing that's valuable to learn about and to sit down and think about it with them in meetings. As if you're a security person, part of your job is to help people think about these things. There's a good threat modeling book, which I recommend. I think it's just called Threat Modeling. I can't remember who it's by now, but it's a long read, but a good read if people are interested in that. But I think, yeah, just sit down and think, what might someone do? You know, it's very different kind of threats. If it's a shopping cart or, you know, you're doing something about money where the threats are usually relatively straightforward because people are trying to take your money away from you. The threat model for, say, a production system is very different from a system that's sitting on a developer's laptop or a a system where you know people might try and misuse resources. For example, the last few years, one of the most common things is that people try and use any kind of thing that's available on the internet to do Monero mining, coin mining usually. So any kind of CI system, any kind of computer that's exposed to the internet, people will run this on it because they can make money out of it and they will use all available resources they can get by any means whatsoever. Bypassing security systems or even just signing up to your service and running CI jobs. I'm sure you've seen that too.
0: Hey, everyone. Sanford has published an open source book called CI CD with Docker and Kubernetes. It combines just the right amount of best practices and practical advice for shipping cloud native apps. Download your free copy today at samforci.com I have to say that we have a number of strategies that evolved over time and they are very skillful of disguising themselves. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) One of the positive things
1: about that is these people are not hostile. They're just trying to steal resources. So they're quite useful in some ways for showing you where the weaknesses in your systems are. They're the friendliest kind of hackers in a way that you can get. They're not trying to steal personal data or anything like that. For many people, it's been an education in where the weaknesses in their systems are. And so it's not 100% a bad thing, even though obviously it's incredibly inconvenient for a lot of people and expensive for many people and things like that as well. But at least you find some of these weaknesses. It's definitely not the worst thing that can happen to your systems.
0: Absolutely. They are great at doing some load testing. So you're creating a thousand accounts and starting thousand trial processes and yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So that's kind of threat modeling, which I think is very important to help people with. It's good for people to learn it, but most of them don't. And then there's really um, specialist areas, I think generally difficult and not many people are going to understand them in depth. And so things like the details of authentication protocols and cryptography and those kinds of things they're difficult and specialist and like there are experts in those fields and I think in a lot of ways the role of security people is to package these up into ways that people can use without making them go that are safe to use and they're hard to make them go wrong and I think historically security People have been quite bad at that. They provide interfaces that are very easy to use incorrectly. There's been a history in the last maybe 15 years of trying to fix that, but it's a very slow process. So Dan Bernstein famously had his sets of things like CryptoBox and NACL and things where they're designed to be misuse resistant. There's more things that are being designed like that because people have realized that it's too difficult to use things and so there's been a big move away from security as just a bunch of primitive functions that you're supposed to combine together yourself to a set of interfaces and ways of using things that are just packaged and work and that movement I think is really important but there's way more work to do there and so Building things like that is a very specialist thing because you've got to understand how the protocols work and how you should and shouldn't use them and provide interfaces. While that's going on, you know, helping people implement authentication correctly and things like that is, you know, something that's important for security specialists to work on to make sure people do it well. And also just generally like helping teams like reviewing stuff designing stuff so that it's saying when people are designing new things that touch security focused ways of doing things. I mean things like penetration testing are things where there's a kind of mixture of like sometimes it's easier to find bugs when you understand the code really well. That's one way. And the other way of finding bugs is to not know the code at all and just try to explore and attack, you know, kind of red teamwork and I always recommend you know, that you do some of each. I think it's really good to get external people. If your code's important, get external people to you know, try and compromise it, attack it, find the holes, because they will just find different things from what you think of when you know the code. You're going to find some of these things yourself, and it's important that you start thinking with a security mindset. I think I kind of taught myself to do that some years ago at a job I had. I set aside an hour. It was like 10 o'clock on Monday. I would spend an hour trying to find security issues in our product. And sometimes I'd find something and sometimes I wouldn't find something. But I'd allow that hour, try something where I thought, this bit of the product might have a problem. Because often you know the pieces you think might have a problem. And doing that internally is really helpful because you know those areas. But someone external knows what mistakes other people who've done the same kind of thing do as well. So if you read security audits, you can understand the kinds of things that they're looking for. One of the things about security audits, actually that's changed recently, is that historically most security audits were never published, but more open source projects are doing open security audits. So the CNCF has started funding security audits for its projects, which has been really valuable because they're all public and you can... Read them and find out what kinds of problems people have found and what they haven't found. I did a talk at KubeCon, I think it was about a year ago, where I talked through the kinds of issues that were found in the security audits that had happened up to that point. It's definitely interesting, you know, just to read these, find a project that's got audits that's maybe a similar domain, or just, you know, understand what kinds of things these security firms will find. It's worth having them internally. I mean, we have a regular program of audits where we decide you know, things that we think should have an audit because they haven't had one and for a while or we've changed the code there a lot or we're doing something new or something like that. So we'll choose a piece to get an external audit for as well. Sometimes they find things, sometimes they don't find things, but you can never tell what's gonna happen.
0: Yeah. Yeah. During our prep call we talked about area of security which is connected to generally the CD pipelines and security. Can you maybe share some of the concrete examples of issues that you are seeing in those? And how generally can people integrate more of those security tests in those pipelines?
1: Yeah. So there's this whole field now that's kind of new called supply chain security, which is all about the security of getting your software, you know, from development to the user and keeping it updated. And there are attacks on software before it gets to production as well as in production. And They've become much more common recently. One of the reasons is that people have spent more time hardening the software while it's running, like these, you know, cross-site scripting attacks and things like that we talked about. Like people have worked out how to protect against those, but the attackers have found that why attack the software in production if you can basically hack it before it gets to production and ship something into production that's not what you meant or has got a backdoor in it. Because if you can get someone to ship software that's already got a backdoor in, you just connect to the back door and you fact it. It's like so much easier than actually having a real attack, <laughs> so to speak. And so we've seen a lot more of these in the last few years, especially. There's been some sort of famous ones. There was a great write-up in Wired about the not pet your attack. Originally this was a big attack. The attackers had basically hacked into a software company in the Ukraine that made accountancy software that was commonly used across Europe. And they basically totally compromised all the build machines in this accountancy company so they could chip out their own hacked versions of the accountancy software. And when people updated, that then attacked their internal networks and basically caused enormous amounts of damage, like shut down whole companies for weeks. It was an unusual attack vector in the sense that the software they were attacking was just a sort of step into the internal corporate networks. But it was like very significant, you know, because it was such a widespread thing and whole companies were shut down. There's actually more straightforward attacks that are actually to attack the software directly that you want to get into. So I've certainly seen in the last few years like that people are just attacking build servers a lot more. So Jenkins, for example, because it's so popular, has been attacked a lot. To be honest, it's never been seen as a sort of high security piece of software because it's kind of been assumed that you're running it behind a firewall or something. But actually, of course, people are running it on the internet because it's more convenient to use it like that. And it has a lot of plugins as well. It kind of reminds me of the sort of ecosystem around things like WordPress, where even when the core software is hard and people install plugins that are weak, and if you can attack someone's Jenkins server, then you can basically change the code that they're shipping then there are other cases where open source projects have been attacked. So there was the event stream thing with NPM recently where someone neglected open source project that lots of people use and someone offered to maintain it. Very helpful. Then, so they do do a new release, but it turns out that this new release includes a targeted attack on a particular company's Bitcoin wallets. And this is a very, very carefully targeted attack. You know, and there's been a few of these recently where they're targeted specifically particular users. There was a hacked version of a BIOS, I can't remember which one it was, which was aimed at you know a small number of specific MAC addresses. Like it didn't affect anyone else. Just check those MAC addresses. If it's that, then it attacks. This kind of targeted attack is much harder because it doesn't affect most people. So they're less likely to notice something's going on. The source code looked fine, but the binaries that they shipped or the minified version actually had the attack in and it was only one particular version which these people were using and things like that. So it's, these kinds of things are happening more and also there's been a lot of cases of things like stolen signing certificates so there was this case where people could generate official Microsoft software updates for a while and then they could ship stuff and it's like there's a lot of software that automatically updates and if you can get your version in there then, you know, you've got control over people's desktops and things like that. So there's a lot going on in this supply chain field. Like there's an Xcode attack recently. If you had that build of Xcode, it would ship modifications in your iOS binaries that you were building so that they would go into shipped iOS apps that you built on your laptop. So there's a lot of work going on in this field to improve it. I mean, some of the things are just straightforward, like build machines are important security assets and you must harden them as much as you do production. Ephemeral builds and things like that are actually really helpful for not having persistent attacks. So if your builds are just like on spun up ephemeral containers or something, then it's actually kind of better. CI providers like you probably have more resource to harden than often individual companies do. I think One of the things that people are realizing is that the cloud and services often, you know, have a huge amount more security resource than their company does, especially for smaller companies where security is a scarce resource. And so outsourcing is probably a good thing from the security point of view for a lot of people. There's a whole bunch of tooling that's starting to happen. I mean, I work on Notary and we're working on a V2 of Notary for container signing. But basically, there's a whole set of technology being built around signing and authentication and transparency logs and things like that for making sure that the things you ship are the things you meant to ship. So there's a whole lot of things there. And then there's a whole set of things about your dependencies, whether you're pulling in dependencies that have security issues that are known. So security scanning, there's a whole kind of industry around that. Then there's static analysis tooling and things like that that will look and see if there's actually suspicious code and things like that that are weird. So static analysis tooling is getting for security issues is getting much better, and I think that there's a lot of good tools that you can use that are defined to find things. Then there's things like hardening developer machines, making sure that you know people are actually updating the os and making sure that your people are getting software from where it's supposed to come from, and those kinds of things, and making people aware of what might happen using signing credentials and things like YubiKeys where the keys are harder to steal because they're actually in hardware and you can't steal them so easily. And, you know, two-factor auth on CI systems and things like that are important systems. You should have two-factor auth on GitHub and things like that. So all those things, you know, areas where people can actually improve on those things.
0: Hey, I'm going to take a quick break here and tell you that Samfor has a new book out called CI CD with Docker and Kubernetes. If you are looking to deploy cloud native apps, it's going to show you the most productive way of doing that. And the best of all, it's free. Download your free copy today at samforci.com. And uh, as you mentioned, like two factor notification, which is something, of course, everyone absolutely should have. Looking at the people's pipelines and helping them develop their ci pipelines, comparing to the times where we started in this industry like eight years ago, various communities now have, let's say, at least a couple of tools that are quite good with analyzing dependencies. We, for instance, were a historically a company which primarily used Ruby. Now we used Go and Elixir, but those communities now have a number of tools that will check all your dependencies and hopefully prevent you from installing an npm package or a ruby gem that has some kind of exploit in it
1: yeah those tools are getting better there's still possibilities that you might install something that has issues but if you can roll back as quickly as possible as well once it's detected and things like that and um we see things like the Apache Struts thing, which was Equifax a few years ago, where like literally people are just not updated for years, even though there was like known exploits. And that I think it's getting easier. There's better tooling to not do that. I think people are slightly worried that they might update to a security thing by keeping too current. But I think it's better to be too current than too old. You know, issues have been around for a long time. People find ways to exploit them like the apache Struts thing i think at the time it was being exploited had been around for a while but you know people had found that it was actually really really serious and easy to exploit and then people write automated scripted exploits and find everyone who's vulnerable and attack them all and so those things become reliability the longer you leave them unpatched
0: yeah one thing that i could add to this is we have various you know pieces of our system that are just uh, you know we are not working on them for a number of months because they're just stable and they're you know well defined and we don't need to change them a lot and we have a daily builds set on them so no one is pushing no one is changing the code but we are still you know running all the tests and building the software and deploying it so one of the reasons why i think people should do it is just to prevent the software erosion so they know if you know Something stopped working for whatever reason. But what we noticed is that relatively often we get a security on a report on some dependency. Something was discovered you know, on some library that you were using. And although you were not you know, touching that software, that daily build that was running just kind of broke your pipeline. It became red because a certain vulnerability was discovered.
1: Yeah, that sounds like you've got a good setup and that's the kind of thing that people should have. It is important to keep building software and testing it because, like, all sorts of software breaks over time because it talks to an external API and the API changes, and you know, all sorts of things happen. Like, you know, you need to upgrade base operating system, other dependencies. Like, there's a whole lot of things that can break software. We have this term bit rot for a reason. It's like you think software doesn't have to change over time, but it does, because all sorts of things in the world change. You can't control everything in the environment.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And certificates expire and things as well. Like these things just happen because they're built into processes and
0: Yeah, yeah. And those things that really rarely change, like some you know, chain certificates or things like that, those are like the hardest to reason about because like it was working for 3 years so just fine and now it suddenly doesn't build because you know it cannot connect to some remote endpoint
1: yeah those things still happen a lot i think let's encrypt has been very good at moving people to you know rolling updates and automated updates and again it's one of those things that, yeah the more often you do it the
0: better yeah something that we also talked about in our prep call the security vendors and what are some of the practices that you should employ so can you maybe give us an overview how you see that area of what security vendors are offering and what is maybe less talked about but also matters a lot
1: yeah so the security industry it's a slightly weird space in a way and a lot of the time traditionally they're trying to sell fear and they're trying to sell it to executives because of how they do things. As an engineer, it's a weird industry to deal with a lot of the companies in it, a lot of the time, I find. Because you don't really know much about what the products are actually doing. There's not much um, open source or try it before you buy it type of things. So it's a kind of weird industry to navigate as you're kind of starting. And there's a lot of hard sell in these areas as well. I think that's starting to change a little bit. But if you talk to a large enterprise and you ask them which security products and vendors they have, generally, they'll tell you they have everything. They literally buy all of it. You know, large enterprises have lots of different teams and areas. And there's a kind of checkbox approach if we need all this stuff. So we'll buy one of these and then someone else buys another one. Then they have both of them. And it's kind of strange, and a lot of it is bought really as insurance, because like people have to say, well, if we get hacked, we want to say that we would at least try not to be, and it's the vendor's fault. And there's definitely, you know, an industry built around that. It makes it difficult for kind of smaller companies and people starting out to know what they should do in this space, and. I mean, I think it's very important to think about risk management as a security person, like what kinds of things am I actually trying to mitigate? What could go wrong? You know, what kind of position would I be in if things happened and things like that as well? I worked in finance for a while. I kind of spent a lot of time, you know, risk management was an important kind of thing. A lot of security people think of things as absolutes. It's like I'm secure or not secure, but no one's secure. It's just a matter of how much defense in depth have you got, which areas have you focused on most, what kind of liabilities do you have? Is it about money or is it about personal data and those things, you know? I mean, code is a liability too. Like the more you're running of your code, the more liability and risk you're taking on. If you can offload it to someone else, then that's less, you know, like if you don't run your own Jenkins servers, then you don't have to patch them, you know, kind of thing. It's like you can offload risk as well. And I think understanding where your risk is and understanding what you actually want from the security industry is important, you know, what you're trying to achieve and what your actual risk profile is. The thing that's kind of gradually changing is that we're seeing more open source and cooperation in the security space, which is a really refreshing change. I think one of the things that's most exciting about CNCF6 security is coming along and talking to, you know, big companies who are saying, we don't want to do all the security work on our own, because we know it's exactly the same as what the other companies in our space are doing. It's not competitive advantage. Why don't we do this collaboratively? You know, so that's a real change in attitude that's happening slowly. And I think, you know, there'll be more security software coming out of end users the way that other software is rather than out of vendors. You know, a lot of the really successful open source software we're seeing now is coming out of like end user companies who built it for their own use cases, things like Envoy as a proxy and things like that. And I think we'll see a lot more of that in security as well. So people building things that fit their use cases in security rather than just trying to buy something off the shelf. Security is a difficult business because it's hard to change the way things work to make them more secure. And, you know, a lot of people have decided that they can't fix the risks and they're going to just kind of mitigate a bit until something really bad goes wrong a lot of the time. So there's a strange set of incentives in the business as a whole about trying to fix problems versus, you know, carrying on as normal. And security is often seen as a cost. There's a bunch of people telling you things could go horribly wrong and they need money to fix them. And you're like, but it's not gone wrong yet. (laughs) Um, And you do talk to people who don't invest in security for that reason. Like, it hasn't gone wrong. I don't think it's that bad. You know, what is the worst case? So kind of understanding how much you should spend, what you should buy, what you should build, how much work should you do. It's a very difficult thing to actually do in that kind of way because it happens so rarely for a lot of people. A lot of the large security incidents you hear about don't end up costing the people that much money people are kind of surprised by that they assume that it would be a disaster but it's actually like something you can live with and actually one of the other trends that's really interesting security now and something that we've been working on for example with nature and TAF, is like this whole idea of survivable compromise it's like what happens when things go wrong like if this key gets stolen how do you rotate it How do you get back to a secure position from an insecure position? Some of that kind of survivability and compromise resistance stuff is another way of approaching this. Like, can we carry on even if there's a minor compromise? Can we recover without having to rebuild everything from scratch? You do hear about people who've been compromised where they just literally destroy all the computers in the business because they don't know what state they're in. That's a really bad way of doing survivability. In the kind of cloud world, you can rebuild things more easily. And, you know, I think compromise resistance is important. If you don't collect unnecessary personal data, it can't get stolen. It's like personal data is a liability. If you don't have that liability, you're in a much better position
0: yeah has everyone figured out that they should not keep credit card numbers on their hard drives yeah. <laughs> yeah minimizing the risk so we talked about building software everything is changing like all the time in various directions so yeah it's all about minimizing the risk and it's a question how far do you want to go in uh, minimizing that since it's not easy thing to measure it's making it much more difficult for people to make decision on that.
1: We're getting better at measuring as part of the software delivery process in many ways. And I think that's been a massive improvement in product design and things like that. But unfortunately, security is really hard to kind of enter that world of measurement. And that's a big problem.
0: I can imagine engineers talking to their executives and executives asking, OK, what's our current state of security? Is like 76% or 96%? Well, you know, I cannot tell you that. <laughs> yeah. One thing that I remember when I was kind of forced as a developer into also thinking about security is that it's, uh, as you also said, it's not black and white at any point. It's just various shades of gray and you would just need as many layers as possible around you or around the data, which is really important.
1: Yeah, and I think layers, security and depth and layers are a very important concept. Google, for example, has hard rules on this, that there have to be two security layers if you're running an untrusted piece of code, it has to have two security layers between it and the Google trusted infrastructure of the things that they build internally. And so that two-layer idea is helpful because one layer, someone could hack that, but two layers is just that much more difficult. Those kinds of concepts are useful if you've got barriers like trusted and untrusted or things that must remain isolated. We have lots of flexibility now. Computers are cheap and you can run a separate cluster or separate machines to run code that has a different security level from other code just to give you that kind of isolation, you know, so your anything to do with payment processing can just not be on the same infrastructure as the stuff that handles personal data. And that can be on a separate infrastructure from, you know, the code that you're running builds on and things like that. So separation of the data so that if one thing goes wrong spilling over into another area is difficult. And you know, you can isolate these things a lot. I mean, we do that with um we have a build infrastructure in Docker. It runs on totally different infrastructure from our internal stuff. All those hosts are disposable and thrown away after use and these things. So it's like those kinds of separation of different kinds of risk level and different bits of data and things are really important as well.
0: Okay, so thank you, Justin, for sharing all this insight in the area, which is maybe less talked about, and I would dare to say less loved among developers, although very, very important.
1: It's fun, too. I do recommend people get into security. Ideally, in advance of it being a real problem. (laughs)
0: Yeah. And we are going to add a couple of resources in the notes about the book Thread Modeling, if I remember correctly, and maybe some links around the work that you are doing at CNCF and around those products. And Justin is very active on Twitter. So we are also going to share a link to Justin's Twitter in the show notes. So Justin, thank you so much for joining us in this episode.
1: Thanks for having me. It's been good fun.